Once again, we welcome you back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome uh, Connor Vasile back to the show. Connor, you've been on here before for the sake of people uh, meeting you for the very first time. Take a moment. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks for having me again, Brian. Uh, Yes, so I'm Connor Vasile. I'm a writer for Young Voices where I comment on political and economic uh, topics and trends these days. And I just like to use my voice to spread the principles of liberty and uh, self-responsibility. I'm looking at an article that you wrote for the Orange County Register that uh, I think this gets right to the point. The headline says the United States shouldn't imitate the United Kingdom's nationalized health care scheme. Now, I agree, but let's let's dive into some of the reasons why we shouldn't. First of all, um, talk to me about how big is the push for um you know, free health care for everyone, because I think that's pretty much the guys that it's it's sold under um, when people promote it, you know, here for the United States. Yeah, well, how much time you got? Because this thing has been uh, going on for quite some time, a few decades at least. We've seen a lot of big proponents for uh, free or nationalized health care from the likes of, let's say, AOC or Bernie Sanders and others similar to them, where basically they want uh, taxpayer subsidized health care because they see it as a human right that everyone deserves um, health care. Even the labor involved is something that should just be given freely because without health, where would we be, you know, which makes right, sense. Right. But um, it would you know, be nice. We... I mean, it's it's a very attractive promise, but. We can look to places where, you know, okay, well, then let's do free health care for everybody, free in quotation marks. Let's talk about the UK. What are some of the lessons we can learn? They've been doing this for a while. So if there's some good, some bad, we should be able to pick up on those things, right? Exactly. I mean, they have been doing it for a while. And unfortunately, uh, pretty recently, we've seen how it's not been working out very well for them, for the, the Brits over there. Uh, a recent study back in July found that around 7.68 million people they've been waiting for consultant specific care like cancer treatment uh over 10,000 patients actually have been waiting over a year 18 months to be exact uh for just general appointments they also found that just shy of 400,000 people have waited over a year for other types of medical assistance Uh, and this is really concerning when you think about it because when you have a system where people are completely dependent on the state uh through the funding of their own taxpayer dollars to basically fund and support their healthcare choices, we find a lot of, um, well, less than positive uh, consequences. Uh, only around 62% of cancer patients, for example, receive their first tra- treatment within two months of an urgent referral. So they're not faring too well over there. And coupled with the fact that you have nursing shortages, you have equipment shortages, you have people literally lining up in the uh, hallways of each hospital because they just don't have enough people on board to actually help them. Uh, it's it's not really panning out too well for them. And and it, you know we worry about you know businesses becoming too big, too impersonal, and uncaring. But when you get government involved, um, I mean I, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to smear everybody at the Department of Motor Vehicles, but how many people look forward to going to the DMV just because you know the the typically the employees are not going to be showing you this utmost courtesy and you know we're so glad for your business because you don't have a choice you're here because you have to be i imagine translated into medicine that's uh that's got to lead to some pretty lackadaisical attitudes i mean if you're looking forward to the dmv i'm sure you're not having a really good day to start with but uh, you know that's a discussion for another day but uh people look at these numbers right and they think 
oh, okay, 10,000 people are waiting here, uh, only 60-something percent get treatment. Oh, but that's just generality. That's never going to happen to me. Well, unfortunately, we have a, uh, quite a few cases, recorded cases, where people are denied treatment, even if it's possible, just because it doesn't fit within uh, the budget for that hospital in the UK. Uh, one of the more recent cases, there was a 19-year-old uh, woman. She was suffering from uh, kidney damage from a very rare uh, mitochondrial disease. Uh, her family found that there was some sort of experimental treatment available in Canada and the U.S., and they petitioned the hospital that she was at uh, to basically let them go and try this treatment. The hospital denied. They said, it's too far gone. This isn't going to get any better. It would just be a waste of time and resources, and it would prolong her suffering. So basically, the UK hospital signed off on her death certificate, and she's now waiting with pain, with this chronic kidney damage, but with no recourse at all, because the court in UK deemed that she wasn't capable of making her own medical decisions, which is just outright ridiculous. I mean, this is coming right off of back in 26, uh, to, forgive me, 2017, there was that infamous case with Charlie Gard, an 11-month-old boy. He had also another rare disease, parents petitioned so they can get experimental treatment out of the country, and the court denied, and he died. So it's really terrifying when you see that these are real people who have to, uh, you know, suffer the consequences of a taxpayer-funded healthcare scheme where they have literally no say in the end to their own medical decisions. That's quite frightening. So let me ask you this, Connor. Why do people push back against the idea of, really, medicine should be handled in the free market and the free market should dictate, you know, what price people are willing to bear for treatment, surgery, so forth, as opposed to getting government involved and, you know, trying to make it fair for everybody, but in fact ruining it for everyone? Exactly, Brian. I mean, you mentioned in a perfect world, it w everything would be free, healthcare would be wonderful and just given out whenever it's needed. However, we don't live in that world. We have to pay people. And when you have government funding, specifically the administrations of these hospitals and these entities, you find a lot of fluff, a lot of bloat. And that's where you get price hikes, you get insurance premiums going just up the roof. And that's because they're not using their money. They're using your money. At the end of the yeah. day, they don't care because they're going to have a constant stream of revenue coming from your taxpayer dollars. And even though it's scary to think, okay, in a free market healthcare system, oh, you're going to have competition. That's horrible. We're treating healthcare like a competition. Well, no, because then you have hospitals, you have doctors, you have practitioner, practitioners forced to actually have quality healthcare at lower prices in order to sustain their practice. Right. So you have the opposite happening in the UK where they have a monopoly on the healthcare. And then what happens? They don't need to worry about quality, which has been going down for years. You don't have to worry about staffing or equipment or any advances in medicine because they control the whole thing. They are not going anywhere. I know it's simplistic, but I'm a simple guy. Um, to me, this is the essence of what happens when you try to do things by central planning. That's kind of, you know, some people prefer the term socialism or collectivism, but when, when you get central planners determining, okay, this is how much treatment we'll provide, this is how many patients we'll see. I mean, the closest we have to it right now is probably the VA, which, again, you know, 
these are the people taking care of our veterans, people to whom it's like, thank you for your service. We owe you this great debt. But, you know, here have some really substandard medical care, or at least that's that's kind of how the VA, I think, is they have a reputation of being like that. Exactly. I mean, that's the model example of what a government run healthcare scheme would look like. Uh, and as you said, at the end of the day, it's very impersonal. I mean, I write in the article how in the UK, uh, to us Americans, we might think, oh, this is horrible how they control like every pretty much every medical decision that a patient can make. But when you look at it from a bird's eye view, it makes complete sense. They have the power of the purse. That means they fund every single healthcare procedure and every medicine, every drug you take. So at the end of the day, they will have the final say on what goes because they're in control of that money. So to have more liberty, to have more freedom in your own choices, we need to get rid of this idea of a nationalized free healthcare as a human right idea, because it's just a fantasy, which clearly, as we see in the UK, has ended up with hundreds and thousands, I should say, of people just waiting for crucial healthcare procedures, which we should not be looking forward to here. I think it comes down to it, which, which promise is going to carry the day, you know, the the promise that we'll get to as many as we can, but, you know, uh, in order to not have these weights or, hey, we'll, we'll make it, you know, as free and accessible to everybody. But I don't think they ever really do the truth in advertising and say, but it's going to come with these costs because I don't know how many people would go for it. Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, we need choice and power over our own, over our own uh, medical choices. And that does not mean that the government can have any say in that. So if we want to have liberty and actual freedom in how we choose to serve ourselves and our health, we need the most control. And that's not through a nationalized system. Here, here. Well, I'm grateful that you are among those raising your voice to, to say, no, thank you. This isn't really what we want at this point. For people who want to follow you, Connor, um, either online, you know, your work or on social media, uh, what's the best place to do that? You can follow me over on Twitter at, at Connor underscore the seal. I, uh, you know, whip up a little storm here and there. So, yeah, great to uh, start conversations with you all. All right. Again, uh, we're talking with Connor Vasile. He is a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Connor, great to talk with you. Thanks again for, for an informed take on an important subject. And I hope we talk again soon. Thanks, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Ian Ching. He's a Young Voices contributor and a master's student at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Ian, congratulations uh, on being a Young Voices contributor. Welcome to the program. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you very much. Um, so I am a student at the Johns Hopkins University. I'm a Canadian student studying international relations here in the heart of Washington, D.C. Um, I've been living here in D.C. for about five years now, and it's been the best you know, experience of my life. And uh, I was um, very, very happy to have been able to you know, publish this first article of mine. Let's talk about this. The article's titled American Academia Funds Genocide and Welcomes China's Campus Surveillance. Now, I have to admit, Ian, I, you know, I'm 
peripherally aware of what's happening to the to the Uyghur population um, in China. Um, kind of aware of China seems to be sticking their nose in and surveilling, you know, everywhere they can. But this was a real eye opener for me that, uh, you know, that American academia, I know politicians turn a blind eye to this kind of stuff because it's in their interest, but academia actively helping to fund this, that was that was pretty interesting. Set the stage for us. When, when we talk about uh, a modern genocide happening in China, what exactly are we, are we talking about? Right. So what we're seeing in, in the Xinjiang region of China essentially is that over a million Uyghurs are being systematically um, are, are having their identity systematically erased, where we have um, parents who are stripped away from their kids who are sent to re-education camps where they're taught and indoctrinated into like into into CCP, you know, um, ideologies where children are being removed um, from from their homes and are being put forcibly put into the homes of like Han Chinese families um, where they aren't allowed to speak their language. Um, where their like culture is being suppressed, and the things this isn't really this isn't limited to the Uyghurs. This is something that the CCP has been doing for decades. They've done this to the Christians. They've done this to the Inner Mongolians. They've done this to um, regional languages, um, and they obviously did that to Hong Kong very recently. Um, and so that's why this is a very important issue that's that's um, been brought forward. Okay. Talk to me about uh, the ways that uh, American colleges and universities invest their money. And um, I I assume it's because China has such incredible, um, there's a lot of economic activity going on at any time. Um, Is is it just wanting to get on the bandwagon with, you know, up and coming industries or or companies in in China? Or is there there something even a little bit more direct that ties them to the Chinese, um, you know, Communist Party? Well, I think from the from the academia perspective, they're not only just um, in, investing their endowments. The universities have uh, massive endowments, but what they're doing is they're basically putting these these um, these endowments into uh, venture equity firms, and those firms are investing in all sorts of businesses across the world. And some of those are in China and in very illicit. Um, in in businesses which have been black blacklisted from, by the Treasury Department for you know employing slave labor um, and various other human rights violations. And the thing is, the universities kind of have an excuse. They can kind of distance themselves from their investments and say, oh, we don't really have a lot of control or say about what our billions of dollars are going into. But the thing is, billions of dollars of student money are going into these sorts of firms. And this is essentially it's a national security issue as well as a moral issue. Um, another way that a lot of these universities don't really have an incentive to to, to divest away from from China is because almost ten percent of their student population comes from international students who are Chinese, the vast majority of them. And of course, these international students are paying full tuition, so their their financial contribution to school is more than just ten percent of what the school's annual revenues are. Um, so they have no reason to, you know, um, to anger the CCP in any ways. Because if 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 they, you know, ang- anger the Chinese government, the Chinese government might not sponsor any more students to go to your particular school, and that means your revenue is going to drop drastically. And that's not something administrators want. I'm trying to read some kind of a noble motive into this for the part of the the universities, and I'm coming up short here. Other than, you know, well, but we, we were just looking at the bottom line and want to make sure, you know, that our endowment is is growing and that we're, you know, continuing to, to bring in money with which to fund us well into the future. But it seems like at some point they'd have to start considering, you know, whether that money's clean or not. 
Yeah, that's one of the problems with uh, modern education in, in America now is that universities are run more like businesses than they are run like schools. They're run um, to maintain, you know, the, the line line the pockets of the administrator. That's why the administration um, in many of these universities have grown 40, 50, 60 percent over the past couple of decades. And and faculty and student are students are becoming less and less uh, have have less and less of a voice in the university decision making process. Interesting. What does China say much about this, or are they just would they just rather this kind of sit on the back burner and hopefully nobody notices? I think China would definitely prefer uh, prefer no one to be looking into this issue. Um, I I don't think you know they would they they want to keep things going as they are. And part of the reason why um why why that's the case is because a lot of a lot of students in China want to go to American schools. They want to study in America. America has the best schools in the world. Um, but part of that problem is that once these students leave China, they're no longer in the in the control of the CCP. They're outside of the Chinese firewall. They're outside the censorship wall. And so what China does is they establish a lot of these um, Confucius Institutes and, and many other apparatuses to reach out into the universities to make sure that they are keeping an eye on Chinese students who are studying abroad, who are studying in America, and to make sure that they're not saying anything um, or doing anything that might anger the Chinese government. Wow. So where do we go from here? Is there willpower within, uh, I mean, does this is it solved at a federal level? Is it solved at the individual school level? Where, where do you start looking for solutions? I definitely think Congress and the federal level needs to take a lead on, on the issue. Um, there have been numerous reports from the government, um, from um, from numerous committees who have investigated uh, university investments, and I think the universities know about this. They've they've read these reports, um, but unless Congress does something to disincentivize these investments and disincentivize the establishment of um, essentially monitoring systems on campuses for students, nothing's going to change. There has been some change that's that's moved in the positive direction. My alma mater, GW. Um, removed the Confucius Institute a couple of years ago because students on my campus pressured them to do so. And, and there were also um, national security ramifications because GW does a lot of um, studies with, uh, with, with the D Department of Defense. And so th having that kind of leverage to um, inform these schools about why, uh, why investments in China are, are a national security issue is very important in that in the national government. So the federal government needs to take a lean on that. Okay. Um, we're down to about a minute left here, Ian. Um, for people who want to get their minds around this issue, are there any particularly good resources where they can, uh, for instance, learn about the, the Uyghurs, you know, and, and then what, where else would you direct them for good, solid information on uh, China? I would, I would definitely say um, the Athenae Institute is one of the um, on-campus uh, organizations uh, that have been campaigning against, you know, want, against uh, investments in like human rights violations. Um, they're amazing. They're out of they um, base themselves out of uh, Catholic University, I believe, um, and I've worked with them for for some time. Um, they're an amazing organization. Um, I would also encourage readers to do more, sorry, listeners to do more uh, research on on the issue, um, and to look beyond look beyond uh, just where, uh, where where beyond beyond where they're sending their money, but also consider uh, how they're going to um, invest their tuition dollars. Here, here. Well, I congratulate you on a well written article. Um, 
this is to be published too. So what, should we be watching, you know, uh, a particular publication for, for this article? Um, I, the article has, has already been published at a uh, real clear education. Um, oh, so fantastic. If you look at, honestly, you can just search Google, uh, look for American academia, academia funds, genocide and welcomes China's campus surveillance. That's going to be the first thing that pops up on Google. Okay. And for those who would like to follow you on social media, what's the best place to do that? You can follow me at Ian Ching 685 on Twitter. Or you can follow me on, on LinkedIn, uh, Ian Ching, um, as well as Instagram uh, by, uh, by the same handle. Okay. Ian, thank you so much. Great to visit with you. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome Armand Sidhu back to the program. He is a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Armand, for those who are meeting you for the first time, take a minute. Just tell us a little bit about who you are. Sure. My name is Armand Sidhu. I am based in Arizona. I've worked, uh, most of my career has been based in K-12 education. Started my career as a public school teacher. Uh, then became a charter school principal, and this past school year uh, launched a nonprofit micro school in my hometown of Chandler, Arizona. So I've worked in mostly education policy and have an interest in in all things uh, American K-12 and higher ed. Well, I'm looking at a column of yours on townhall.com, and uh, I, I'm anxious to learn about this. California's new math framework needs a history lesson. They revamped or uh, they they overhauled their their math framework. What? was the problem? What was the justification there? Sure. So uh, first place to start, um, standards and frameworks are a little bit different. So standards teach uh, or tell us what we should be teaching students. So what should a student know in math by the end of kindergarten? What should they know by the end of third grade, eighth grade, before they graduate high school? Uh, This framework is separate from the standards, but the framework, we can think of this as the how. How does a teacher, how does a district administrator, how does a school board member understand how to implement the policy so that they're in accordance with the state standards. Uh, so where the controversy really lies, and this is kind of a, and I mentioned this as a history lesson because we're kind of seeing deja vu. In the 1990s, we had a movement known as the Math Wars, and it was a very similar situation. We had traditionalists. So traditionalists are those individuals, and this is where we see math being most popularly taught, not just in the United States, but uh, throughout Europe, throughout Asia where there's an emphasis on math facts. So making sure students understand, especially in the early grades, um, their times tables, they know how to add numbers straight away, they know how to fill out um, a times table for their ones, twos, numbers, single digit numbers, that way that they're able to progress to the next parts of math. Because within math standards, uh, we're always looking to progress on the next skill. So what this standard framework did And there's a lot of different changes, but in this one, I just concentrate on two of the biggest ones. And the first is what I just mentioned, and that's really the emphasis on elementary. Um, We're seeing a push for what we call inquiry-based learning or exploratory learning. And the reason why that becomes a problem is when we don't give students, especially in grades kindergarten through third grade, when they don't get that solid foundation in math facts, it leads to a problem in which they 
don't master those. And then when it comes to algebra or when it comes to subjects like calculus or areas needed for college and career readiness, that's where they really start to struggle. And then they begin to um, you know, drop out or they have math anxiety, don't feel encouraged to do that. So the intention behind this was to reform mathematics education in a way where students didn't feel as discouraged, felt more encouraged to stick with the subjects and had more choice in terms of what types of subjects they could learn. Um, of course, the other problem with that is students don't necessarily know what they're missing in terms of math, and they don't know necessarily what to prepare for in the workforce when it comes to math. So that's why these decisions have to be made by this framework. And uh, that's really where the first problem lies. That, you know, sadly, I can really relate, though. Um, seventh grade, I lost my grasp on the math concepts we were learning and for the rest of junior high, the rest of high school, even in college, it was a struggle. I mean, it was like when you talk about math anxiety, people think, oh, that couldn't be real. No, it's very real. And it and it just it's no fun at all. But um, so so let's talk a little bit about uh, what works versus versus what doesn't. I mean, uh, people have different learning styles. Some people are auditory learners. Some are kin, uh, kinesthetic learners and some, um, you know, are more applied. Uh, can it be done with a one size fits all approach or does there has to be some have to be some flexibility within the system to accommodate those different styles? So definitely the latter. It, um, one of the things and I think if there was one thing every school in America can improve upon, regardless of its public, charter, private, it's creating that personalized learning. And that didn't become more true than the impacts from the pandemic, where we've seen students really lose a lot of those math skills that are necessary. And to your point, you know, an experience in seventh grade and a poor experience in seventh grade can really set the trajectory and limit to students on what they think they can achieve. If a student is struggling and feels like they can barely get through algebra one or algebra two, and they want to go into a field in STEM, medicine, uh, engineering, all of those are going to have very rigorous mathematics. And those, the way that those are taught in the higher ed system is completely incompatible with or incompatible with California's current uh, framework. So this was ostensibly meant to be an, an initiative in equity, where we're trying to help the students who are in the intervention stage kind of be standardized and everybody is taking the same math class, same age, same time. Uh, but the problem with this, and this is kind of where we get into the secondary impact. I mentioned elementary students, this framework is discouraging um, an emphasis on math facts, which students need to memorize to be successful. The secondary impact uh, is we saw a discouragement of acceleration. And this was based off of um, the initiative that San Francisco Unified School District started in 2014. And since then, it's actually has not worked well, was not based off of research. Students were discouraged from taking math classes to their level. So if you have a student that's doing really well, needs a bit more of a challenge, um, those districts began to discourage schools from allowing a eighth grader to take algebra one. Now you might be wondering why is that important? Because by the time and the way that we, we do mathematics in, in the United States is most freshmen in the country start with algebra one. But if a student is looking to take calculus, is looking to get into a, a top-notch school, they're going to need to move at a faster pace. And the only way to really get to taking a calculus one or calculus two or those higher ed math classes uh, is by taking and having access to that 
early on. So that would be in the middle school ages, being able to get through that curriculum. And it's not just important to make sure that the kids that need help get their intervention, but it's also important that we sustain any interest and, and um, aptitude that students have in mathematics. And that's important just to cultivate the next generation of talent in this country, as well as just to keep students encouraged with it. Because we don't want students to be bored as well, and then not be given that challenge and be given the, the room to really succeed in what is a, a high in demand field. Is it likely that California education officials are going to um, be willing to look at what they can learn from the historical records? You know, they can learn from math wars, for instance, or do they think they've got it figured out this time and they're just going to, you know, plow forward no matter what? Well, you know, it was a very tricky time to launch this sort of reform. So uh, the latest version, which was released this past July, is the third version. And what we've seen between versions one and three is... First of all, the emphasis on acceleration, that was probably the biggest opposition we saw where people were saying we should allow students in our country to have access, if they have that ability, to access higher level math at an earlier age. We shouldn't be discouraging that, getting rid of honors classes or any of those sort of advanced math classes. So I think it's, it's kind of a tricky situation in which uh, this policy guidance, even though it's not considered a law, it still gives an administrator who empathizes with, with the beliefs there to have cover and say to a school board, look, this is what the state is saying we need to do. It's in our best interest for future compliance and, and things in the future that we adopt this now. So that's kind of where this becomes harmful. Uh, but I don't necessarily see, unless there's you know a substantial change in, in the research in California's uh, uh, assessment scores where this is, is going to see a next evolution. I think what we'll see instead, um, similar to what we saw in San Francisco when they implemented parts of this policy, is we're going to see a rise in, in private school enrollment and the students and families that can afford to have access to private schools that don't need to um, worry about the state's math framework, they're going to benefit. And ultimately, students that don't have access to that are, are not going to be able to have the equitable treatment that this policy was supposed to supposed to provide. Well, if if nothing else jumps out, it's that idea that uh, historically, one size fits all solutions. You know, they seem they're well intended and, and they may solve a lot of problems for a lot of people, but inevitably it's going to have some some problems and leave some people out. So I, I much prefer the approach that you're talking about, which is more focused on individual strengths and uh, not trying to basically strain everybody through the same exact uh, experience because it's it's going to be different and. It'll be curious to see. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, who was it who pushed the strongest? Was it the teachers' unions that, that pushed for this this overhauling of uh, the math framework, or did that originate from elsewhere? Uh, so this originated, and a lot of standards frameworks are done with uh, input from teachers, but also from academics. So we saw a lot of individuals from Stanford University, University of California, Berkeley, the CSU schools come out in opposition to this because their students, their future students, are ultimately going to be impacted by these changes in mathematics teaching. And how, like how I mentioned, uh, it's always easiest to accomplish education policy on paper. The hardest part is really implementing that part. So it's very easy to say these are the things that we should achieve. But when standards ignore things like absenteeism, um, you know, teacher turnover, uh, bureaucracy, when those things are kind of ignored, it, it makes these kind of a mute point in terms of, of reform and change. All right. Again, we are talking with Armand Sidhu. He is a Young Voices contributor who's worked in K-12 education as a principal and teacher in public and charter schools and currently leads a nonprofit micro school. Armand, great to catch up with you. I hope we talk again soon. 
I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today. Happy to welcome Sarah Anderson back to the program. Sarah, in addition to being a Young Voices contributor, uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Sure, Brian. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, for those who aren't familiar with the R Street Institute, that's the organization that I work with. Um, we're a limited government research group um, who does limited advocacy on um, some of the policies that we really have sound research around. And so I'm the Associate Director of Criminal Justice and Civil Liberties at the R Street Institute. And as such, I work on a number of issues um, throughout the criminal justice system, from policing to pretrial work, reentry work, juvenile justice work, and of course, part of that um, from beginning to end is drug policy. And so that's where my article and reason on cannabis policy comes into play. So it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is a fascinating article. Um, I was, I, I've been trying to keep track over the years. I did not realize 38 states now have some form of legal cannabis. Of course, the federal government still says, nope, nope, it's still illegal. So there's, there's obviously some friction points between the federal laws and the state laws. Um, Your article says both parties agree the marijuana industry status quo is untenable. Let's talk about what some of the complications are and and why this can't go on indefinitely. Yeah, that's correct. You're right to point out that 38 states now have some form of legal cannabis, um, but the federal government still classifies it as a Schedule One substance, meaning that it's the maximal level of illegal that it could be at the federal level. They classify it as having no medical purposes. Obviously, we know these days with research and people's experiences with the substance that that's not true. Um, but the point that my article gets to is really that the dual legality between 38 states, which is a supermajority, having some form of legal cannabis, and the federal government still keeping it illegal, presents an issue beyond just the question of legitimacy of the law, having the federal government and states be so different on this substance, but also to do with safety around banking. And the issue there is that since banks are federally regulated, as we know by the FDIC, there is no legal avenue for banks to offer their services to state legal marijuana businesses. And this creates a cash economy, which as I noted in my article, Senator Jeff Merkley astutely said that a cash economy is great if you're a criminal and it's great for organized crime. Um, And that is a reality that none of us should want. So the Safer Banking Act, which I talk about in the piece, would just be a simple step to not even push the needle further toward legalized cannabis in any particular state. There are a number of legislators who support this legislation who do not support legalizing cannabis. However, they recognize the reality that in states where it is legal, there's a huge issue with having businesses operating in cash, whether it's employees leaving the businesses with large amounts of cash being targeted um, for theft or for robbery or for any other um, type of issue that they may encounter in terms of difficulty proving your income or difficulty acquiring a mortgage because you work at a um, establishment that's recognized by your state, of course, but you cannot bank through that. And so it's difficult to acquire credit, get a mortgage, all of these types of things, which just is a hindrance to participating in society. 
I, I have mixed feelings on this, I have to admit, just because I kind of like the cash economy because of privacy and you know the fact that there are people sure. in government who don't want me to have my cash. But at the same time, it, it's these are legitimate businesses. They're not uh, they're not fly by night. They're they're licensed. They're okay to to do yeah. business, but they can't do anything but handle cash, which does make them a target to uh, right. I think from criminals. a from a liberty standpoint, I am with you on that. Uh, but the purpose there would be, you know. If they choose to operate in cash, wonderful for them, but they should not be forced to op operate in cash from being shut out entirely from the banking industry. I appreciate that distinction. That's that's well put. So I, I have to ask, how who pushes back against the hardest against this reform? Is it job security for the DEA or others? You know that uh, they would lobby and say, no, 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 we don't want to see, you know, the um, status quo change. Uh, I'm I'm curious who, right. who would push back against it. I think primarily it's folks who are just concerned that it is a step toward legalizing cannabis nationwide. But I would posit that whether you think it is or whether you think it is not, that the current status of cannabis dual legality between the federal and the state governments does create in itself a public safety threat and that we know that a supermajority of Americans do not even think that cannabis should be illegal. And therefore, when you have law enforcement out there on the streets doing what they're assigned to do to protect and serve their communities, but they're being tasked with enforcing laws that most of the community does not agree with, that makes people view police as illegitimate. So that's a concern across the board, um, whether it's somebody in a state that has legal cannabis being confused as to why if the feds were to come in, they could arrest them for something that is very legal, um, or whether it's in a state that has illegal cannabis, where they don't understand why if you go 20 feet, you know, 20 miles to the east or 20 miles to the west, they're not committing any crime under state law. However, in the place that they currently are, that it is a crime that is you know, punishable by multiple, many, many years in jail or prison. Um, so I think that in itself is a public safety threat, that it's a it's a good small step that the federal government can take to acknowledge for people in America who believe that cannabis should be legal, that maybe even if the federal government is not taking the full step to deschedule cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act, at least they're recognizing the reality that people who have been living in states with legal cannabis for you know a decade or more, close to a decade or more now, when you think about Colorado and other states that kind of were pioneers on exploring legalized cannabis, that you know the reality has changed in your state and we're not gonna shut you out of government, um, not government services, but just businesses that are regulated by the federal government, just by nature of you living in a state and working in an industry that the federal government hasn't caught up on yet. So interesting. And, and I appreciate your take on this. This is, I, I've wondered about some of the things that were going on behind the scenes. Um, be very curious to see if this, uh, if this bank act you know, could, if this Safer Banking Act could could make a difference. But again, yeah. like you pointed out, there are people who are probably quite worried. Oh, this is, you know, this is going to lead to the legalization of everything. You know, right. no rules at all. Right. Yeah. And I don't think that's true. You know, Senator Daines, who's an ardent supporter of this legislation, even said in his opening statement that he is opposed to the legalization or decriminalization of marijuana. But he recognizes that the Safer Banking Act is not about that and is, in fact, just about acknowledging the current status quo in many states, which presents a public safety threat, in fact, from not making this reform, not a public safety boon by keeping it in the way that it is. So Sarah, just following through though on, you know, the the 38 states that have found a legal path to, to cannabis, um, 
That's not to say every other state needs to follow along, but you would think the federal government at some point has got to say, you know, the the consensus, it's kind of like prohibition. There was a point where it was clear right. that it's not stopping anything. Why, why do we go through the motions? Right. Well, the policy of the federal government sort of off and on, it had a stint went the other way during um, Jeff Sessions' tenure as attorney general under Trump. But since 2013, there was a memo called the Cole Memo that came out that basically directed the agencies inside the federal government to not stand in the way of states and their agencies that have chosen to have some form of legal cannabis. So even from a federal level, it's not like they're really enforcing the Schedule One classification of the substance anyway. And so this is just a common sense step toward writing that dual legality and making people feel like laws more accurately reflect the things that they believe in society. I just got to ask you, um, what do you know about the U.S. before all of the narcotics laws? I'm like saying prior to 1914. Um, I, I, I just was wondering if have you ever touched on, you know, what, what the laws were like back then? So it's actually interesting when you bring that up. There's a lot of things that now we don't even think that we can't even fathom a society where some of the laws we have did not exist at all. Um, and we actually put out recently, my boss, Jillian Snyder, who's a retired NYPD officer, recently put out a piece in National Affairs about the history of policing. Um, and even back when you're talking about 1914, the modern concept of police wasn't even really around until yeah. just a couple of centuries ago. And so the drug law is the same way. It's amazing that we did exist as a society without some of these laws even in place at all. Um, so I encourage you to go check out that piece as well and sort of look at the development of drug laws and policing in our country. It's fascinating. It makes me happy to hear you describe that because I, I know the average American probably isn't aware. They weren't aware that, you know, prior to 1913, we didn't have a an income tax either. But there, there's another topic right. for discussion. But <laughs> what a world. <laughs> a person could walk into a pharmacy and get lab grade cocaine. They could get heroin. They could get laudanum they could get you know real deal drugs right. and without even so much as a prescription and yet you know since that time you know people yeah people would get hooked but there was greater incentive i guess to to be careful with what you were doing right not to say we should go back to that but certainly our cannabis businesses should be able to bank safely and securely i think at least <laughs> all right again we're talking with sarah anderson sarah for those uh, who would like to follow you on social media or would just like to follow your work where can they find you again definitely find us at rstreet.org is our full website our criminal justice and civil liberties page has all the work from myself and all the other scholars on our team and you can find us on twitter as well at or i guess x at rsi all right. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks, Brian.